All right, welcome into the Nick Bob podcast, coming to you live from New York City. If you listen closely, you can hear the sirens and the sounds of the city. And do they stop even in the middle of the night? They do not. They do not stop in the middle of the night. I went walking around the city of New York, going to various places, saying, do you have any earplugs? And they were like, no. And I was like, how do you guys not have any earplugs? I am going to continue my uh, my quest to find earplugs so we can get some uh, get some sleep here in New York City. But I am... Here for the Big East Tournament with the Creighton Blue Jays. And uh, let's get right to the big story. We'll get to, uh, I'll set up the, the guest of the day. It's going to be Bruce Rasmussen. There's some stuff I want to set up before we get to that uh, that interview. I'm taping this on a Wednesday. It is about uh, 10 o'clock, 10.15 Eastern time. Uh, they got the play-in games tonight. Creighton in action about 24 hours from now. So for the last three to four months, whenever I'd be walking around town and uh, and have little conversations with people and about Creighton and and field the question of Nick, hey, what do you think of Creighton? What do you can they make some noise in March? What do you think of the Jays? Can they do it? I'd always say, listen, they got to get healthy and stay healthy. If they stay healthy, look out. That always be, and I know people can be like, that's a lame answer. You're lame, Nick. I hate you. I don't know why I come in. I'm like, all right, come down. But that's always my my answer is always they just got to stay healthy. They stay healthy, yeah. Like I'm I'm really confident in this team. They stay healthy. They get healthy. Look out. Well, in what was a gut punch of news, Marcus Zagorowski injured his meniscus, and he's having it scoped probably like as we're speaking right now. Uh, We are in New York City, uh, and Marcus Zagorowski went and saw a knee specialist on Tuesday here in New York, and he's having it scoped today. And Zagorowski has officially been ruled out for the Big East tournament, and his status for the NCAA tournament next week is un- unknown. I mean, unbelievable! Like, and we throw out that we we throw out that term "unbelievable" probably too much in our in our lives in the sports world, where it's like, "Oh, it's unbelievable!" Is it though? Like, this this is truly unbelievable. I don't know what Creighton has done to piss off the the basketball gods, but they're starting to feel a little cursed. I mean, think about the last just four seasons of Creighton basketball. 2017, Creighton's 18-1, and one, got up to seventh in the country. That was, you know, Pat and Kohlhoff, Kyrie Thomas, Marcus Foster, and of course, Maurice Watson. Maurice Watson tears his ACL, chances of making a deep run in March, gone. 2018, Creighton's 15-4, and four, coming along nicely. And then against Seton Hall in January, Martin, Martin Crumple tears his ACL. And keep in mind, that was the year that Creighton was in Charlotte for the NCAA tournament. And Creighton would have played, they were in the 8-9 game against Kansas State. I think with Martin Crumple, they, they would have had a great chance of beating Kansas State. But, and that was the year that UMBC upset Virginia and so Creighton would have faced UMBC to go to the Sweet 16 and oh by the way Loyola Chicago was going to be in that regional final so there's a chance Creighton would have played Loyola Chicago to go to the final four Ugh. okay last year Marcus Zagorowski breaks his hand in the in the middle of the conference race he misses three games Creighton goes 0-3 in that stretch, and even when he came back, he was basically playing with one hand. Anybody that watched him play, even when he was back on the floor, I was joking. With, I was joking with Bishop. It was almost like he was Chubbs from Happy Gilmore. Like he had like one, he had like one hand that couldn't like bend. It was horrible. So even when he was back on the floor, he was not the Marcus Zagorowski that that we know he can be. And what happened? Creighton was, this time last year, Creighton came to New York and was on the bubble. And they were on the outside looking into the bubble then, got out, missed the tournament, went to the NIT. And now here we are in this year, 2019-2020 season. Creighton is having a magical year, 24-7, and just beat Seton Hall to win a share of the Big East regular season crown. They're projected as a two or a three seed in some brackets. And on what was basically the final play of the Seton Hall game, Marcus Zagorowski 
injures his knee, hurts his meniscus, and all of a sudden, once again, the chances of Creighton making a run take a huge hit. Truthfully unbelievable. Now, to be fair, there there is still a chance Marcus Zagorowski makes a speedy, incredible recovery and plays again this season in the NCAA tournament. But that feels like a potential long shot to me. And listen, even if he does play, Zagorowski won't be close to 100%. This is a big, big blow. It's a big blow. I've, I've told you guys all year, from my Creighton preview back in October, Marcus Zagorowski is the guy for this Creighton team. He's the MVP. He's the engine. He's the catalyst. He's the man. Hell, I even told you guys, what, about a week ago, in my, I, I gave you guys my three rules or realities for Creighton to have success. And what was rule number one? Rule number one was Marcus Zagorowski has to play well. I mean, go back and look at all the games outside of probably the Michigan game and the Georgetown game on the road. Every game where Creighton's gotten beat, Zagorowski's not played well. Rule one was Marcus Zagorowski has to play well. So naturally, if he's not out there or not close to 100%, that's a problem. That is a problem. So this is huge. This is huge. Okay, so what now? You know, like, I mean, it does, it's not like you can just, you know, cry and, and just forfeit the rest of the season, right? I mean, we're, we're in New York. Creighton's here. Creighton's going to tip it up and play this week. You know, the first question, you know, some people have tweeted, I mean, can Creighton still win the Big East tournament? I, I lean towards no. I mean, their path is tough. Even, even their first game, their quarterfinal game, Creighton's going to play the winner of St. John's and Georgetown, both teams who beat Creighton in the regular season. And Creighton's going to be without Marcus Zagorowski. And if, if St. John's ends up being the matchup, Mike Anderson, they are going to smell blood. They're going to be salivating. And you know what they're going to do? They are going to heat Creighton up with their full court pressure. And that's a problem without Zagorowski's ball handling. So even the first game, is going to be tough. And then Creighton's going to likely have to play, assuming they beat Butler, which I think they will. Creighton's going to have to play the other hottest team in the conference, Providence, which is even above Nova and above Seton Hall, Providence is the toughest matchup for Creighton in this conference. They're big, they're physical, they slow the game down. So that's going to be brutal. And then they'd have to play Nova or Seton Hall in the finals. So, really tough path, even with Marcus Zagorowski healthy, brutal path without him healthy. So, listen, anything's possible. Do I, would I put my money on Creighton making a run here in New York? I, probably not. So, okay, so it's like, well, then what do you want to see here? Well, I do think, I do think it's important. I think Creighton needs to play two games here in New York. Meaning they need to win their first round game and then go swing away in the semifinals. Why? Because A, you need to keep your seed as good as possible for Selection Sunday. And then B, you need to get at least two games under your belt of learning how to play without Zagorowski. Yeah, you can scrimmage, you can work five on five in the half court and practice and all this stuff, but there's nothing quite like a game. And these guys are going to have to retool and adjust on the fly of, of how to play without Zagorowski. And you need as much real game experience in figuring that out. I think that's important. I think that is important. So as far as the NCAA tournament, I don't know. I mean, there's a part of me that's like, we'll cross that bridge when it comes. Because so much of it depends on the health of Zagorowski, the, the matchups, the seed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I will say this. If, if Marcus Zagorowski doesn't play and Creighton makes it to the Sweet 16, that's unbelievable to me. I mean, that's amazing. 
So in the meantime, I mean, let's not all drown in our own tears and just, you know, just shut down shop and no more, no more Creighton basketball. I mean, Creighton still has to go out and play these games and you better believe Tyshawn Alexander and Mitch Ballock. I mean, they're, they're going to be hungry to go compete and fight. You think those guys are just going to lay down? Shit. You, you think Tyshawn, Mitch and those guys, if, I mean, don't, Marcus is a guy, but if we've learned anything. Christian Bishop, Damian Jefferson, Denzel Mahoney, Mitch Ballack, Tyson, there's some badass dudes right there. So what does this team look like now as we hear the fire hydrant in the background roaring? Perfect background ambiance for being in New York. So what does this team look like now? I got five things, just kind of five thoughts or things to be watching for. Number one. I'll be interested to see how much Creighton still wants to play fast and play with pace. Naturally, they won't be as effective running because Marcus Zagorowski isn't quarterbacking the transition game. And now depth becomes an issue, too, with losing a body in an already short rotation. Now, you can't totally change your stripes at this point in the season. The reality is Creighton is still at their best when they're playing fast and running, even without Marcus. So I think they will still look to push, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are a few moments where you see Greg McDermott slam on the brakes a little bit. But again, this is why Creighton needs to get a few games under their belt to figure these things out. That's number one. Number two, Tyshawn Alexander is going to have to slide over and play some more point guard. Now, the good news is, Tyson Alexander played point guard his freshman year, freshman year at Creighton, so he's at least done it. This isn't totally foreign to him. But now all of a sudden you go, can Tyson Alexander wear all these hats? Defensive stopper, scorer, and run the show at the point guard spot. That's that's hard, right? That's can he chase the other team's best player around and then get the outlet pass, push it, and then it's not there, pull it out and get Creighton organized and run the show. That's a lot. That's a lot to put on dude's plate. But Tyshawn Alexander is going to have to do it. Number three, I think we'll see Denzel Mahoney slide into the starting lineup. So I think the starters now will be Tyshawn Alexander, Mitch Ballock, Damian Jefferson, Denzel Mahoney, and Christian Bishop. On paper, that's still a pretty explosive lineup. But everyone's role slightly gets altered a bit. And, you know, all these guys have have settled in. Everybody's settled into that chemistry and rhythm of how things flow with, with the core group. And sometimes all it takes is removing one guy and things get a little disjointed. But everyone's role gets slightly altered, mainly because they don't have Marcus Zagorowski spoon-feeding everyone's shots. Now... Creighton's got to still be a team that plays unselfish and shares the basketball. But I do think guys like, in particular, Mitch Ballock and Denzel Mahoney, I think they got to get more aggressive to playmake. Not necessarily shoot, but to playmake. Now, Denzel Mahoney, you always kind of got to rein him in a little bit. Because Mahoney's kind of got this, and I've played with players like this, Mahoney's kind of got this bad habit that some players have. You can tell when Denzel Mahoney doesn't know what to do, what does he do? He just shoots. <laughs> I played with guys like that. Like you can tell when he doesn't quite know what to do, homeboy just lets it rip. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So it's always been kind of there's there's been a process with Denzel of kind of reining him in a little bit. But with Zegarowski out, he he probably's got to look to pick and choose his spots to really channel the Southeast Missouri State Denzel Mahoney where he's got his foot on the gas looking to attack and make plays because they need his scoring now, big time. They always needed it. Now they need it a lot. Number four, going to be more minutes for Sharif Mitchell. He's he Sharif Mitchell's about to get a lot more opportunities. And while there is a dramatic drop-off in offense with Mitchell out there and, and Zagorowski not, Sharif Mitchell's a better defensive player than Marcus Zagorowski in terms of on-ball defense, in terms of being able to really heat up the other team's point guard. So I think Sharif Mitchell needs to flex his muscles there. And then my advice, and hell, I might even say this to Sharif if I see him over the next 24 hours. But at the same time, it's like, I guarantee you, Paul Luskin, Murph, and all those guys, they're saying this stuff. 
My main thought to Sharif Mitchell would be this. I'd say, hey, Sharif, on offense, guess what your prevailing thoughts? Remember on The Simpsons, Bart, you know, on the opening credits, Bart's like writing something on the chalkboard like over and over, like I will not de-pants Nelson or I will not, you know, like something, whatever. I would, Sharif needs to write, get the ball to Tyshawn and Mitch, get the ball to Tyshawn and Mitch, get the ball to Tyshawn and Mitch, get the ball to Tyshawn and Mitch. Get them shots. Get those dude shots. When I was on the floor with Nate Funk, that was all I thought about. That was the only thing I was thinking about on offense. Where's Funk? Get the ball to Funk. Go screen for Funk. Go find Funk. Funk, Funk, Funk. Where's Funk at? That was it. Because I knew the more he got, the more shots he got, the more in a rhythm and a flow he got, the better everything else was going to fall into place. Because if he's scoring, then he's attracting attention. And there's probably a better chance that I might land into an open look or an, an opportunity to score. But if I got an outlet, it was where's Funk? In the half court, let's run a set for Funk. If I didn't have the ball and Funk didn't have the ball, I was going to go set a back screen, a flare screen for Funk. That's, I mean, my thought was Nate motherfucking Funk. Where is he at? Sharif Mitchell needs to do the same thing. Tyshawn Alexander, Mitch Ballock, where are those guys at? Screen, find him, make shots for him. That's it. Don't worry about you getting in the lane and getting a little flip. Like, all that stuff will happen off of those dudes getting theirs. Now, with all that said, the reality is, I mean, Sharif Mitchell has not shot it well from three. And while you don't want him jacking triples, at some point over the next however many games Creighton has left, Four, five, six times a game, Sharif Mitchell's going to be open on the wing or at the top of the key in the corner, and he's going to have to step up and knock a few down. He's capable of it. Now, he's not an elite shooter, but he's capable. So, you're if Sharif Mitchell can make a few threes over the next week or so, that is huge. Huge. And number five, lastly... On the floor leadership, what does that look like? Now, the three leaders of this team, Tyson Alexander, Mitch Ballock, and Marcus Zagorowski, they all lead in their own different way. Ballock's the more vocal guy, but don't get it twisted. Marcus Zagorowski was a leader on the floor in his own way. And, And more so than anything, you know what he did? He set the competitive tone every game. Anybody that's watched that guy play, he plays with a raging fire that you can just feel. You just feel him on the floor. You know, we talk about all of the tangible things that Creighton's going to miss with Zegarowski, three-point shooting, playmaking, mid-range, running the show, attracting attention on ball screens. Like Those are all tangible things. Zegarowski brought a lot of intangibles to the floor, too. He played with a giant chip on his shoulder. And that, I think the team fed off of that. So, you know, what does Creighton do to replace that in his absence? That's a big void to fill. Bringing energy, bringing the fight, bringing the competitiveness. What does that look like? I hope I'm wrong, but you know what wouldn't surprise me is if the first three, four minutes of their quarterfinal game, Creighton is flat. They're a little flat. Because you take these things for granted. You take for granted that you got a little Massachusetts cat that is just pissed off that the other team would even dream of stepping on the floor and competing against him. Like, that's how that guy played. He played with a giant just F you. And Creighton needs that. Tyshawn's kind of a quiet, like he's kind of, he, you know, he's he's got that that quietness to him. Now he'll 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 play with some swag. You know, Mitch is kind of loose and talking to everybody. Like they needed that, like that F you tone setter. 
and that was Marcus. What does that look like? So everybody, everybody's got to step up, man. Everybody's got to step up. So we'll see. I mean, Greg McDermott is kind of the MacGyver of coaches in some ways. You know, it's like, we'll give you a 6'7", small forward, a transfer from Southeast Missouri State, you know, and all this. And he's like, all right, got it. I'll turn them into Biggie's champs. And so if there's anyone who can piece things together and press the right buttons, it's Greg McDermott. But he's got his work cut out for him. He's got his work cut out for him. So there you go. We'll see what happens with Zagorowski's knee. And fingers crossed he makes a speedy recovery and gets back on the floor because that dude is a stud, man. Yeah, I have a I have a, a little son. My wife is pregnant. I have a son that's a baby boy due in July. I was going to name him Marcus Zagorowski Bob, but you know, I figured that was maybe a little too, <laughs> too forward. But, I mean, I, just, I think Zagorowski is just a stud, man. But you know, he's just been snake bit with injuries, just like Creighton's program has been for the last few years. We'll see if the the good luck and good fortune can swing back towards Creighton's direction. But it's March, baby. Here we go. Okay, so let's get to the guest of the day here. I recorded uh, Creighton Athletic Director Bruce Rasmussen on Sunday night. So this was this conversation about the year was all before the news about Marcus Zagorowski. We didn't know what was that, you know going to happen. He hadn't had an MRI yet. We didn't know. And it was. You know, Rass and I, we talked about Creighton beating Seton Hall, winning the Big East, you know, what this journey into the Big East has been like from an athletic director perspective, his thoughts on on Greg McDermott and what he's seen in terms of his coaching, all that. And then, you know, you, you got to remember, Bruce Rasmussen was the chair of the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee three years ago. So this is a week with Selection Sunday coming up this Sunday you know, bracketology and bubble talk and seating and who gets in and who doesn't is all top of mind for everybody. Right. And so I was like, you know what? I want to get Rass on to pick his brain on a bunch of that stuff. I mean, we all sit here and, you know, on our couch and go, I tell you what, I, that team's not in. Well, Rass actually like sat in a room and like made those decisions. But again, this was all taped on Sunday night before the Marcus Zagorowski news broke. But this was still a great conversation that I think you guys are really, really, really going to enjoy. So let's get to it. Here is my podcast chat with former chair of the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee and Creighton Athletic Director Bruce. Rasmussen. Well, he's one of my favorite guys in the world, Bruce Rasmussen, Creighton Athletic Director. And uh, Ras, I have to imagine you are still uh, smiling ear to ear. We're, we're, we're taping this on a Sunday night, so we're a little over 24 hours removed from, from just a, what was an incredible day for Creighton basketball. You have obviously you know, been the, the architect for building the program up. Where does Saturday and Creighton winning a share of the Big East title, Where I mean, is it on top three, top five kind of moments for Creighton basketball and for, for your experience? Well, first of all, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. So anything that I say in terms of when you're asking me to remember something, uh, anything that, uh, that uh, any context I put in it doesn't really have a value. I don't know where it ranks, but I tell you, it was, uh, it was a special day. Because for a lot of reasons, I mean, the CHI Center was rocky. The fans were into it. The students were into it. And, uh, you know, when when you are 17 and one at home or whatever we were this year, you have to give the fans a lot of credit. And while our student body has at times come under criticism for not being energetic or large in numbers, the student body was amazing yesterday. But. The, the thing that made it great to me was all year, one of the words that you've heard from our players almost universally is joy. The joy of playing, the joy of the relationship that they had with their teammates. And if you watch the game yesterday, during the game, you could tell that our players loved what they were doing and they loved who they were doing it with. And that was very obvious, and it just it made a special. Seton Hall is a Final Four caliber team. I was on the men's basketball committee one year as where I shadowed and five years on the committee, and the characteristics that Seton Hall has are 
very similar to a lot of teams that not only have made the Final Four, but have won the whole thing. So it wasn't that we beat somebody to to share the conference championship. It was that we beat Seton Hall to share the conference yeah. championship. And when you're talking about Villanova, Creighton, and Seton Hall, you're talking about three of the top 10 or 15 teams in the country. It, it, totally agree. What – you know, I was, I've said this in a weird way. It kind of feels like the same Kyle Corver, Ryan Sears, Ben Walker are somewhat almost distant cousins of Tyson Alexander, Marcus Zagorowski, Mitch Ballack, kind of in the, the, the way they play the skill, the unselfishness, how connected they are. Like what stands out to you when you watch this Creighton basketball team? Cause it, it, it's, it's amazing how, the names can change, but the, the essence of the program kind of still maintains all these years. Well, first of all, you give Dana Altman and Greg McDermott a lot of credit for identifying a culture that can be successful at Creighton. And I know culture is an overused term, but and I can tell you what I think our culture is, but identifying it and recruiting to it and coaching to it and emphasizing it. And um, uh, the players, we, we get a, a lot into the what. Okay, what did Kyle do? How many points did he score? How many games did we win? What was the shooting percentage? Doug McDermott, you know, what did he accomplish? Uh, you know, how many points did uh, Marcus Zagorowski? We get into the what. We don't spend enough time on the why. Mm -hmm. Why these kids, and I never, I don't like to use the word overachieve because I think we all have much greater potential than we think. But why did all of these guys narrow that gap between potential and performance where they reached or came close to reaching their potential with their performance? And we talk about the what. But the why is they were, they're all wired the same way. Okay. They're all wired that practice is a minimum job description. I'm going to practice to find out what I need to work on. And then I'm going to go on my own and I'm going to work on it. And I'm going to be obsessed with getting better at what I found in practice was my weaknesses. Uh, and that I am going to do whatever it takes to win. Uh, Marcus Zagorowski. He has a bad game. He's in the gym. Kyle Corver. He had a bad game. He was in the gym. Kyle Corver. When he got beat off the dribble, he's at practice the next day working on that. They all of these kids. It's not what they have accomplished, but why. And when you look at a Mitch Ballack, who's in the gym a lot, and he's working on game type shots in game type situations outside of practice. Tyshawn Alexander has really committed to play in defense. And it's like, boy, Tyshawn's good. Let's talk about why Tyshawn is good. Because Tyshawn studies film. Mm -hmm. He looks at the tendencies of those he's going to play. He takes away what they want to do best. Marcus Zagorowski studies. He, I mean, these kids have overachieved. And again, I use that. These kids have come closer to, to reaching their potential individually and as a group because they're their passion for the game has them do things that others are unwilling to do. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Did you feel, you know, because for people that don't know, on you know, on a lot of these official visits, they these recruits get a little time with you, Ras, and you get to yeah. you know talk to them and 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 get a sense for who they are. Did you did you feel like guys like Mitch and Tyshawn and Marcus felt special even when you met them as high school seniors and juniors? Well, Tyshawn, not so much because he was shy, but I'm yeah. going to tell you that there have been three or four kids in all my years at Creighton, and when Dana first came 25 years ago, I met with basically every basketball recruit, and I asked him a lot the same questions, you know. We can, we, can, uh, we can tell them what they're going to do for us, but they're going to make a decision based on what we do for them. And I ask him, you know, why do you play basketball? Why, why are you out? What are your goals? But what can we do for you? What are you willing to do to be a good basketball player? Kyle Korber, Ryan Sears, uh, Doug McDermott, uh, Marcus Zagorowski, and Mitch Ballack all basically had the same answer. 
They looked me in the eye and said, I'll do whatever it takes to be good. I'm coming here. Let the coaching staff do tell me I'm coming here because the coaching staff will develop me and the coaching staff will help me be the player I want to be. But I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And pretty much every one of those players answered my question the same way. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, Russ. You had a great line. I was listening on the radio, and I'm, I'm probably going to butcher it, but you, you know, you, you, you know, you talk about culture, and rather than getting guys to mold to the culture, it's important to recruit guys that already fit your culture. You know, like as an athletic director, how much I don't want to say input, but how much conversations do you and, and Coach Mack have about getting the right guy? in the locker room or is it one of those things that you have total trust that that coach Mack knows what that looks like and he's going to go identify and recruit that type of guy well you certainly have a lot more trust in coaches that do that when you know that's the culture and that's the emphasis that a coach puts on it right but the reality is that in in basketball or in football or in any sport you don't have to have everybody that comes here with great culture you can change kids but you can't have a dominance of people who you need to teach them the right culture. You have to have examples, not from the coaching staff. You have to have examples from the players. And it doesn't have to be universal, but you have to have a predominance of that. So on the teams that we've had that have done the best job of narrowing that gap, you had a Ben Walker and you had a Ryan Sears. Right. You, know, you had a Kyle Corver. You had uh, – Doug McDermott and you had a Grant Gibbs right now we've got I mean and I don't want to just pick out those three but those three all have the culture you want so if you bring in someone who needs to mature in their attitude and their understanding of what's important in the game you've got dominant people in practice to do that so you don't have to have 13 players that all have the right attitude you but you have to have a dominance of those right. and I, I do trust coach and I trust his staff because I'm around him every day, and I know what I know how coach teaches. I know what's important to him. I know that he recognizes the value of every player on the team, whether you're a kid that never gets on the floor or whether you're the star player, and you know that that's the culture that's going to be taught and it's going to be emphasized. You know, Russ, I, I bet if you talk to a lot of the the people from the outside in about Greg McDermott, they would all say, oh, you know, his defining characteristic is he has an, uh, he's an unbelievable offensive mind. And while that's true, I mean, he, Mac is, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves, what his teams do offensively. I think his greatest gift as a coach is his ability to connect with people. And I think we can we can get into base on the bound sets and how you hedge a screen or what you like to do against a zone. But ultimately, coaching is connecting. And I think that, like, for me, being around Mac for 10 years, that's my big takeaway. What you're, You coached and you hired Greg McDermott. What is, what is it that you are continually like, wow, this guy is special in terms of his ability to coach? I think you're 100% accurate, Nick. I think Mac's greatest talent is the relationship that he has with the players. And I will tell you that players universally don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm. And Mac is there to serve them. They're not there to serve him. And even though he's got some standards, he adjusts what he does on offense and defense. He adjusts his, his play collect or uh, collection and, and, you know, the play calling based on the talents of the kids that he has. And so to me, uh, in, especially in today's age, there are some outstanding coaches, but we sometimes forget that you play basketball, you play football, you play volleyball. There has to be an element of play. There has to be an element of joy to the process, because if there isn't, you're not getting in on your own to, to you find out what you need to work on in practice. You're not getting on your own outside of practice. You're going to say, I just can't wait to get through practice. I just right. want to get through the day. But if you know coach cares and there's an element of fun and joy, even though there are demands to the process, you're willing to get in on your own. In fact, you're driven to get in on your own. Every coach says the same thing. Welcome to the Blue Jay family. Welcome to the Husker family. Welcome to the Mav family. 
Mac's greatest strength, and you touched on it, is nobody lives that saying more than Mac. Mm -hmm. Every player is important in his relationship with every player. He's taught me so much about the importance of relationships and how to deal with people, not just when they're doing well, but how to deal with people when they come up short. Yeah, totally. And it's not just... You know, some people here be like, "Oh, Max, just all buddy buddy with you." Nah, not necessarily. Oh, no. Like he'll have he'll have tough conversations with you, but you know, he again, it's just it, he, how he does it. He just does it in his own way that is just hard to replicate because it's unique to him, and yeah. it, it's just special. It really is. I I agree hundred percent, and you have to coach your personality, and his personality fits today's player. Yes, you know. I, I've talked about this. I remember vividly March 2013 when all the Big East, you know, Creighton's leaving the Valley, going to the Big East. And, you know, of course you're like, oh, this is going to be awesome. This is, an, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But there was an element also of like, oh, man, <laughs> we got a good thing going in the Valley. You know I mean? Yeah. We're a winning program. And you're like, boy, are we going to go from being the top dog in a conference to all of a sudden, you know, now you're, you're a little bit lower on the totem pole. I think everyone understands what your challenges are from a coach in those it, throughout this process. Ras, take me behind the scenes from you know an, an administration AD perspective on what this process has been like getting Creighton into the Big East to seeing Creighton cut down nets wearing shirts that say Big East champs. Well, first of all, I called when it became evident that we were going to go into the Big East, I called some athletic directors in the Big East that had gone through the transition. You know, uh, Marquette was not always in the Big East. Butler, uh, um, DePaul was not always in the Big East. I had a relationship with the Notre Dame athletic director. Notre Dame wasn't always in the Big East. And when I called the Notre Dame athletic director, he wasn't the athletic director at Notre Dame when they went through the transition, but he was on the board. And he said, do you realize that the first three years that Notre Dame went in the Big East, they finished in the bottom three in that league? Mm. And I, I said, Notre Dame? Notre Dame has, you know, that national presence. Yes. Uh, DePaul never got over it. And the Marquette AD said, here's how we got over it. Dwayne Wade. <laughs> but they all said that it's going to take five to ten years because, one, the Big East is a big boy league, and the commitment that the Big East makes to basketball, you don't understand. And you can't, you can't replicate that in a one- or two- or three-year period of time. You've got to have fourth- and fifth-year seniors that have been there, done that, and you started recruiting – when they were ninth and 10th graders, because you're not going to get the ones you need if you start recruiting them when they're juniors and seniors. Right. So you've got to recruit kids that are ninth and 10th graders, and they've got to be fourth and fifth year players. So you start looking at that. And you're saying, wow, my math isn't real good, but this is going to take a little bit longer than we think. And it's going to take a little bit longer than our fans think. And so what, what being in the Big East has done, first of all, it has allowed us to recruit a better caliber athlete. No doubt. Because your best athletes want to play against the best competition, but still recruit the type of character of kid that we've wanted to have in our program. So we've been able to upgrade our athleticism without, uh, without sacrificing our culture. Yeah. But it's taken, it's taken time. I mean... You know, you take a Mitch Ballack. When did we start recruiting Mitch? You take a Tyshawn or a Marcus Zagorowski or a Marcus Foster. I mean, you go back through the list, and it's it's taken some time, and we're still not there depth-wise. Mm -hmm. You know, we're still very fragile. We don't have the size, the physicality, or the depth that the traditional programs have, but we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, there, there's no doubt. That's that's interesting. I want to shift real quick before we let you run. I want to talk a little bit. About, obviously, it's Selection Sunday is is coming up, and so people are everybody is uh, is thinking about you know bracketology and who's going to get in, who's going to get out. I mean, you lived it. You were the chair of the NCAA tournament selection committee. What, what was the what was the hardest thing? I know that's probably hard to narrow down one thing because it's all challenging, but. You know, when you're actually the guy that has to sit in that chair and 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 make these decisions and all that, what was the hardest thing about it? 
Well, the most emotional uh, distressing thing was the last four in and the first four out. Right. Because if if you get in, you have a chance to improve your seating by just winning a game. But if you're the first four out or even deeper than that, you don't even have an opportunity. So that's the most emotional gut-wrenching. The most difficult thing, frankly, is putting them in order, one through 68. It is it is unbelievably difficult. And while the, you want to get the first quadrant right, the first quadrant is much easier than the rest of the bracket. The top 16 teams, people may disagree about the order, but there isn't a lot of disagreement about the top 10 to 15 teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can disagree. I mean, and even seed lines, you may be off a seed line or off a, you know, we have them the sixth best team and people think they should be the fifth best. Where it really gets difficult is the difference between the 15th best team and the 50th best team is paper thin. It may be opportunity. It may be, we spent a, the hardest thing for me was, to explain why games happened that you didn't, they happened different than what you think. Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, why did Creighton beat Butler by 30 and turn around and lose to St. John's by what we did? Yep. And I thought it, it fell basically into three buckets. First bucket is three point shooting. You know, yep. you, you get a team that shoots 40% from three that goes, you know, three for 20. And you shoot a team that shoots 29% from three that goes 14 for 19. Yeah. And that happens. Even your best shooters, you take Kyle Corbin, Doug McDermott, two of the best shooters in the NBA. You see them five for seven one night, one for seven the next. And so three-point shot has a, an unbelievable influence on the results of games. The second bucket is foul trouble. And it isn't just foul trouble. It, to a certain extent, it's how the game's foul, uh, called. Yep. And I I like the uh, I I think officials and the better officials are better than people think, but you also know just like teams uh, have a style, referees have a style. And when I look at a game that didn't happen the way I thought it would, I looked at who officiated the game, and not to say that they're one-sided, but to say they're going to let it be physical. And that advantages this team and not this team. Or you see that a player got two fouls early and sat out and foul trouble kept the best player out or limited their minutes. And then the third bucket is teams that have a player that's either missing because of injuries or he's playing, but he's not 100 percent. And so to spend time from 15 to 50 uh, trying to rank teams and yet not go by net, not going just by analytics, but also going by observation yeah. and trying to explain why games happen the way they happened. And also not to put too much emphasis on one game, because I think when I coached and you played, you play 30 games, you're going to have a handful where you go, boy, I wish we played this way all the time. <laughs> right. and, and you're going to have a handful where you're going to say, let's just get out of town. You know, <laughs> right. And you hope on those days where you're struggling, so is the other team. But there are times where you have that game where you're struggling and the other team is just the opposite uh, or vice versa. And so, you know, we have a lot of discussion about that. And you want to put them in the right order because they played 30-some games to earn that spot. Sure. So if you miss if you miss seed a 13th seed or a 14th seed and there you give them a 13 and they should be an 11th, you not only have penalized them, you penalize the team they're going to play. Totally agree. God, that's good. That that is, that's really good. Do you? Would you say you? This is a, a very dumbed down question of it. Do Do you like the net and the quadrant systems? I mean, it's just a sorting tool to go along with what you all, all that you just laid out of of observing. But would you say because you know you get some people that that you know it is it's hard to have a system that everyone's going to be thrilled with. You know, that's just kind of the world we live in. But overall, Ras, do you like do you like the net and the quadrant systems? Well, first of all, the net 
I think has its flaws, and uh, I think the committee has has recognized it. But just like we do with officiating, they wanted to get two years worth of data before they made changes. Okay, and it is it's not a selection tool; it is a sorting tool. Yeah, and it's sort of like to use the golf analogy: you got fourteen clubs in your bag, okay. Uh, and some clubs are more important than others. Probably your putter is one of those. And the net by itself is like a five iron. You know, you yep. hope when you use it that it works well, but you can't just count on the five iron. Uh, so you've got you've got to use observation. You've got to use a lot of different analytics. And those people that are on the committee for two or three or four years have an understanding of why Ken Palm has outliers and, you know, why they're outliers or why the net has outliers or why the RPI has outliers. There's selection, but you also have to go by observation and you have to have a good balance between the two. And so, uh, and then even when you do it and even when you think that you've got an order that you're somewhat comfortable with and then you bracket and you see the matchups, you're going, uh-oh, <laughs> this team may be a five seed and that may be a 12 seed. They're not going to like that match. <laughs> how, Ras, how hard is it to judge a mid-major versus a power conference team? You know, like a uh, you know, an, an Indiana who's on the bubble, who plays in the Big Ten, and you know they're you know, every single night. So, uh, you know, you're playing a you know one of the best teams in the country versus a you know a team that is you know playing in maybe the Mountain West or playing in the A10. I mean, it's kind of it's you don't want to say it's apples and oranges, but there are two; those are two different worlds. Yet you got to make them exist under the same in the same world. Right. And that's why, while the quadrant system is a sorting tool, the problem that the public has is that they look at all quadrant one games as the same or all quadrant two games as the same. Say this team has eight quadrant one wins. Well, a win against the number one team in net is completely different than a win against the 30th best team in the net. And a road win is different than a home win. And so when you look at quadrant one or quadrant two, a lot of people say, well, they got five quadrant one wins and they got nine. Well, they're not all the same. Right. And those five may have a lot more impact than the nine. So I have my own system. And and I'm going to address the second part of your question with this. I have a sliding scale. So if you and I take the silos out, quadrant one and quadrant two, I put quadrant one and quadrant two together and if you beat the number one team at home that's worth 30 points if you beat them on the road or neutral it's worth 50 and if you beat them on the road it's worth 75 and i slide it down if you beat the number two team at home it's worth 29 points okay all the way down to first and second quadrants why do i only go the first and second quadrants because those are teams that are tournament caliber right and then what i do is i have two columns I have one column which says how many points total, and you don't get any points for a loss. These are only for wins. So how many points did you accumulate uh, on, based on my sliding scale? And I have, a, I have one through 100, the top 100 teams, according to how many points they accumulated. The second chart I have is how many points did you accumulate per opportunity? So you're right, a... a Gonzaga doesn't have the same, or a St. Mary's, or a BYU, or an Eastern Tennessee, or mm-hmm. a Bradley, or Northern Iowa. They don't have the same number of opportunities, so they can't get the, the same number of points. But let's see what they did with the opportunities they had. Right. And let me go back, and I hesitate to say this because it won't work this year, but I started this the year that North Carolina and Gonzaga played in the championship game. Okay. Was it that three years ago, four yeah, years ago? Yeah, that sounds right, three or four. And, and the, the team that had the most points using my sliding scale with, was North Carolina. The team that had the most points per opportunity was Gonzaga. Wow. Okay. When Villanova played in the, and won, both times Villanova won, they were at the top of both charts, okay. most points, most points per opportunity. Wow. And the same, the year Virginia won it. So, wow. uh, 
And when I looked at it, if you look at the net or the RPI or whatever, if you take the top 50 teams in net and the top 50 teams on my list in terms of total points, like 46 of the 50 were from the top six or seven conferences. Okay. But if you looked at the points per opportunity and the top 50, only 30 some of them were from the top six or seven conferences. So I'm not saying that it's accurate, but what I'm saying is it gives you a way to look at those 10 or 15 teams that didn't have as many opportunities and to peel the onion back and say, let's take a little bit more of a look at these teams and let's compare what Northern Iowa did or what BYU did with the opportunities that they had. God, that's really good because it's so true. And you've experienced it as a, as an athletic director. I've experienced it as a player where, you know, I remember being in the Valley and being like, it, it felt like, I don't know if you ever played the game Jenga, where it's like Jenga, you're just trying to not to screw it up. Like at yeah. the end of the year, you're just like, we just can't screw it up. And then you're sitting there and every night you turn on TV and you're watching all these, you know, Oklahoma State and all these teams have all these opportunities to play their way in. I remember being frustrated about it, but then also yeah. it's it's different in, in those, in the Big 12 or in the Big 10. And so I like how you you've kind of balanced each world with with that mechanism of of just you know because you recognize that it is different but we have to we have to create a system where we acknowledge the the opportunities that certain schools get and what they do with those opportunities because the reality is you're just not there's no way to create the same amount of opportunities for St. Mary's as there is for Michigan State it's just not going to happen but you but we have to make it work I mean, an example this year, if you look at our net, uh, the first two quadrants, I think we have seven games total in quadrants three and four. So I played 30 games. Yep. 20 some of them are in quadrants one and two. Yeah. You look at Gonzaga or BYU, they're almost the opposite. And yet those are quality teams. Yes. So you've got to find a way to compare those two. And it's, it is difficult and it's emotional and people will look at reasons to put a team in, but you also have to look at reasons why you put somebody else in, in their place. Sure. sure. I like that. Russ, have you gone to Google with your little, your idea? I think Google, I think uh, Google would hire you on the spot with that. idea. Well, I'm going to, I, I, and here, one of the flaws, there are flaws in the system because obviously a team that hits a lot of threes in the first round of the tournament could, could upset yep. my, my ranking, but, uh, I, the other thing is I do it before most of the conference tournaments. So okay. the next two days, I will be coming up with my system. And Nick, for confidential reasons only, <laughs> not for gambling purposes, <laughs> I will show you okay. my 100 in both columns. Uh, okay. I am now I, – I feel like I, I am like a kid on Christmas Eve. I got something to look forward to, Russ. I'm, yeah. I'm excited. I, I love it. Well, hey, man, th this is 30 minutes of awesome stuff. Uh, I won't take up any more of your time. Ras, uh, you, you are you are the best AD in the country. I think the world of you, and uh, I'll be seeing a lot of you over the next couple of, uh, of weeks with Creighton. Thank you for your time. Well, we look forward to it. Thanks, Nick. Oh, Parkville Media Production.